I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Okay, welcome back everybody to another episode of Disasters Deconstructed. We're almost at the end of the season, aren't we, Ksenia? We are. Hello, everyone. Penultimate episode. I, I, you know, I can't, I can't believe we're in the end of season two. Kind of scary. It feels like we've been doing it forever, but also not for that long, right? That's true. And the cool thing is that we've already kind of planned out two more seasons and it's probably just going to go on forever, like we, we mentioned previously. <laughs> is it the cool thing or a scary thing? I'm not sure. I guess it depends on who you ask. But yeah, mm. so you people have something to look forward to. And I've got my stationary chair here so that I don't like move around and wreck the sound quality, which I've been doing for two seasons so far. Do you know? This is a very I, real problem. It is. I was going to just tell our listeners what's going on with me when you hear my <laughs> voice go like, like this and over here and it comes back and then I'm over this way. Well, what's actually going on is sometimes I have a rolly chair like with wheels. And so sometimes when I'm thinking I'm going back and forth like moving around the mic. Um, so I started to use a stationary chair, which I go and sit in front of the mic so that I can't move. But what I found I was doing was when I'm like thinking and I don't know what to say next, I'm, I move my head to like look to the left and look to the right <laughs> to try to find out what I'm going to say. And then the sound gets wrecked. So what I've started to do is to just move my eyes, which makes a lot of sense, right? So if I move my eyes to the left and to the right, then I can keep my face in front of the microphone. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, Jason. I, I, I don't really know what to say to you, you know. Um, Just congratulate yeah. me. Congratulations on Thank you. learning how to sit still. All right. So, yes, we have a really exciting um, episode today. And... Um, we're kind of continuing in the series of episodes looking at different groups who are oppressed or marginalized or made vulnerable in our society. Um, and today we're talking about the homeless. So today we're really, really excited to welcome Jamie Vickery to talk to us about disasters and homelessness. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating topic and the one that we haven't really touched upon before at all. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you too so much for having me. I'm very honored to participate. Thanks for joining us, Jamie. Jamie is a research associate at the Natural Hazard Center, and she's also a postdoctoral associate with the National Center of Atmospheric Research in Colorado. So Jamie has a really interesting background. She's a political scientist and she's got a PhD in sociology and she's interested in marginalized populations, political ecology, and also social inequality. So it'll be really, really interesting to talk to you. And we've been really looking forward to it, Jamie. Oh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it as well. Yeah, and we're um, really, really grateful to have this opportunity to speak about another group which is um, made vulnerable or oppressed in our society um coming to the end of the season and um i think it it kind of rounds it off really nicely and obviously we haven't touched on every group which is uh, vulnerable in society but um we'd also love to hear from our listeners as to whether there are other groups that you would like to um, hear us talk about or other people you'd like us to speak to on the podcast please drop us a line on twitter or by email um 
But Jamie, we'd like to start off just by giving a bit of context to this subject, because homelessness is obviously one of the pressing social issues of our time. Um, and around the world, there's um, billions of people lacking adequate housing. And added, added to this, there's millions of people displaced by disasters and hazards um, every year. But we don't have a lot of knowledge about how homeless people deal with hazards and disasters. And we don't see a lot of consideration for them in policies relating to risk reduction and so on. So maybe you can start us off by telling us a bit about how you got into this topic. Yes, absolutely. And, and you're exactly right. There's such a need for additional research in this area of work. And I really appreciate the question and opportunity to talk about this. Um, so for me, upon going into graduate school at the University of Colorado Boulder, I knew that I wanted to study the social dimensions of hazards and disasters. And I was especially interested in understanding the differential experiences and effects of disasters on marginalized populations. Um, why disaster experiences and recoveries among certain groups varied, for, in for instance. Um, so in September of 2013, about a year after I started, it was my second year of graduate school, Colorado experienced historic flooding along parts of the Front Range, including Boulder County, where um, the University of Colorado Boulder is located. Uh, I was living uh, off campus at that time, and uh, I, I was actually my I was uh, living, you know, with a roommate at the time, and I was not able to evacuate because our apartment complex we weren't able to evacuate uh, because our complex had become an island, so to speak. So we had um, we were living along uh, a major creekway, Boulder Creek. Uh, that runs through a significant portion, uh, entire portion of Boulder County from west to east. And uh, so we were we were essentially stuck in our apartment building at that time. Um, and, you know, hearing the sirens blare all around us, it was a very, it was an interesting experience to say the least, because I, you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in Oklahoma where we were, I've, you know, encountered a range of hazards and disasters, unfortunately, yeah. but being in a flood, um, you know, in an area that I was still trying to become more familiar with was was a very interesting experience mm. um, personally. But during that time, you know, we were we were fortunate, we were safe. Um, and during that time, I, I couldn't stop thinking about the people that I passed, that I said hello to every day on my way to campus. And and these were people who were camping along the creek and were camping along some of the pathways and under the underpasses on my way to campus. Um, so I encountered them every day, and I was thinking you know, where do they go during times of disaster? Where, where are they at right now? What are they doing? Um, so my, you know, I was constantly thinking about them. And um, that's really what interested me in this particular area of work, uh, based on very personal experience and um, thinking about how I could contribute to, you know, the knowledge around this and contribute to practice around how uh, we can understand not only understand the experiences of people who are experiencing homelessness, um, but what are some you know what are some ways that we can you know ensure that they are given access to to resources to shelter during times of disaster and, and I mean I don't want to get too much into the other questions but you know how this also speaks to day to day experiences. One of the things that that strikes me from uh, the work that you've done on this topic is how you bring an intersectional approach to your research um, and you try to deal with this problem of homeless populations being homogenized in the way that we speak about them. So maybe you could speak to that a bit and why you feel like that's an important part of your work. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, identifying as homeless in and of itself poses unique issues, unique barriers for people in accessing resources um, outside times of disaster, let alone during times of disaster. Um, so first and foremost, acknowledging the effects of social stigma on access is an initial consideration, especially when working with this uh, particular uh, community. Um, beyond this, People experiencing homelessness have a range of identities that intersect and inform their day-to-day -day lives, their lived experiences, and disaster experiences. Um, as Kimberly Crenshaw first argued, we cannot separate these identities. So together, they inform lived experiences, moving beyond more homogenizing notions of groups. And, and this has uh, historically been the case with vulnerable groups, as I'm sure um, others have mentioned uh, on the episodes before me. So together they informed uh, lived experiences of these groups. And so other identities and factors such as gender, mental illness, including addiction and PTSD, immigration status, and physical constraints overlap to inform us of the very unique experiences within these populations. So as J.C. Gallard and his colleagues mentioned in their recent paper on persistent precarity and the disaster of everyday life, disaster risk reduction needs to integrate understandings of root causes of homelessness, as well as um, implementing and trying to foster genuine participation among those who are experiencing homelessness or, or who are precariously housed. And incorporating all of this in disaster risk reduction, first, it requires an understanding of these, you know, of these processes that serve to make segments of the population vulnerable. Yeah. And then uh, beyond that, involving uh, people experiencing homelessness in meaningful ways is absolutely essential. So uh, this may include first beginning with the groups and organizations that serve homeless communities, um, getting an understand, bringing them to the table. talk about kind of the different stories that we tell about marginalized groups or oppressed peoples um, and they're often so one-dimensional right and mm -hmm. um, there's a big problem in in how that affects the perception of those groups and individuals um, and so people are approaching the topic with all sorts of, of biases and um, ideas of what it what it means to be part of that group which are often not accurate. Yeah. And I, I do want to add that, um, you know, as others have mentioned that, you know, that these status, that some of these statuses, these identities, you know, this, some, you know, this is not all static. So vulnerability isn't static. It's not a static condition. And that's something that, you know, turning the attention to what is actually creating vulnerability. Um, it was Darian Alexander on an earlier episode that actually mentioned the phrase vulnerableizing, that it's someone else doing the vulnerableizing mm. and understanding that this, you know, that, that that's, that that's the case. And, and obviously recognizing the identities, the various identities of this particular group, um, while acknowledging, you know, that there's broader, you know, there's broader processes at play here. Mm. So I, Jamie, I wonder what actually happens to homeless people during disasters, because again, this is, these are not the stories that we ever hear about, right? So mm -hmm. do they get access to shelter? How do they get informed about disaster? You know, who, who looks after them or do they look after each other? Can you tell us some, some stories? Wow. I can definitely share some stories and I, I will say that there's absolutely not one answer to this. I, uh, 
given that my work focused primarily in Boulder, Colorado, that's where much of my insights, you know, around this come from. So I just want to say that and that there's obviously other scholars doing work in other parts of the world, other parts of the United States. So I just want to, <laughs> I just want to um, include that caveat at the outset. Mm-hmm. So what I'll, what I'm speaking to here, you know, is definitely, I don't think uh, unique to Colorado. I think that it's indicative of uh, broader experiences, but I just wanted to place that caveat at the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking specifically from the 2013 floods that happened, uh, so <laughs> this happened during a time of the year in September that where these public uh, shelters for people experiencing homelessness were not open, these larger shelters, at least. There were some smaller um, transitional programs that were operating at the time, but uh, essentially given the time of year, the seasonality, um, people either moved on to different parts of the state, different parts of the country, or they were camping um, uh, as I mentioned uh, before. So their experiences were that many of these folks that I met with were uh, outside uh, during the time of the floods, they were camping out. Um, and so this was very, I mean, this isn't something that is unique. A lot of people who are experiencing homelessness decide or whether or not they actually have a choice to, I should say that, um, to camp and to to stay outside. And some people don't choose not to um, stay in shelters. So that's an important uh, thing to mention. So even if there was shelter availability, um, some people who are experiencing homelessness do not feel comfortable in shelters. Mm-hmm. Um, so for them, especially folks, I mean, there was flooding in areas that were not identified on the floodplain, make, making this a very unique event. Um, so while there were people that had their belongings washed away along creeks and tributaries, for instance, there was also pockets of flooding in area that in areas that weren't um, necessarily planned for uh, in floodplain mapping, given that this was a significant rainfall event and not one that was the result of uh, spring flooding, for example. Um, so for many of the people that I met with who were camping out at the time, they lost all of their belongings. They lost their tents, their IDs, birth certificates, mementos, pictures. I mean, they lost absolutely everything. Um, and so something that I like to it's something that one of the uh, interviewees that I met with who worked in a homeless disturbing organization in Boulder County explained to me that, you know, while comparatively the losses of um, those experiencing homelessness were smaller in comparison to, to the larger economic losses of their housed counterparts, um, they were nonetheless devastating. They lost everything. Um, and, and being able to you know, thinking about having to go through the process of getting this, getting some of their belongings back, getting their IDs back, getting their birth certificates back. I mean, just it's just a daunting endeavor for anyone, let alone someone who doesn't have access, who may not have access to resources, who may not know where to go. So that, you know, for many of them, they lost everything. Uh, and something that's really interesting to consider, too, are not just um, the losses that occurred as a result of, you know, campsites and being washed away. But uh, many people also, people who are precariously housed, they use storage units um, to store many of their belongings, even if they don't have um, a a residence at that time that that would be considered, you know, an apartment, for example, or or a housing rental unit, for instance. Mm. Um, But they uh, put all of their belongings in there in these uh, units. 
And so many of these units, especially in the northern part of the county in North Boulder, uh, were completely flooded. They were in uh, flood prone areas and they lost all, all their belongings, even if they were themselves safe. Mm. So for some folks in Boulder County, um, they were initially turned away from a public disaster shelter. Whoa. Yeah. So during the peak of the flooding, they were initially turned away because they could not provide a home address. Um and this was actually, this was occurring around the same time that I started looking into where do they go? Where do people who are experiencing homelessness who are camping out, where do they go? Um, and I came across an article uh, that was released during the peak of the flooding where people were being turned away. And yeah. uh, this was not a part of the policy for this particular, um, for the group that was running this shelter. This So it was turned around it was but for several hours people were being turned away because they couldn't provide a home address or because they appeared to be homeless that's crazy um yeah it was gut-wrenching i i absolutely horrible to read that um so it was turned over but by that time you know who knows how many people were uh turned away and sent back out into the elements being forced to find shelter elsewhere and keep in mind this all happened in the context of time where these larger scale emergency shelters were not operating for, for people experiencing homelessness. And I guess all of this is part of our negative social perception, right? Of kind of homeless mm -hmm. people. Um, so I, I, and we never hear about it. These stories somehow just get so hidden. So Jamie, thinking about people experiencing homelessness for them every day is a disaster. And mm -hmm. you reflect on this in your writing. And so um, given that people experiencing homelessness are not often represented in the political narrative. How do you think they can be involved or included in decision making? And how can we reflect their needs in, say, policy planning, especially as we see, as you said, some um, cities making it harder for um, people experiencing homelessness to navigate life and navigate that experience? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And I don't think that there's one answer. There's not one right answer as each community, um, you know, navigating, trying to address homelessness is unique. So first, though, I think that it involves taking a look at what systems, what policies are currently in place uh, that increase vulnerability for those experiencing homelessness or yeah. those who are precariously housed. Um, so, for instance, you know, what actions take place outside of a disaster context that increase vulnerability and limit the agency of people to uh, effectively respond to um, and recover from disaster and, and have, you know, access to resources in their day-to-day -day lives and be able to navigate their day-to-day -day lives. Um, yeah. So for, so one specific example of this, again, going back to the context in Boulder, though, this, this is not unique to Boulder, um, they is a camping ban that they have in place that causes people to especially those when you think about those who do who do not want to uh, take shelter in a public shelter, those who feel more comfortable camping outside, they're effectively criminalized for yeah. for camping in public spaces. And so that has a negative effect on their day to day lives. These policies that are in place that that serve to criminalize, that serve to dehumanize and stigmatize these groups are, I would say, a first step uh, recognizing these policies and their effects, mm. recognizing these laws and then um, 
overturn. I mean, I don't know how to be blatant about overturning them, finding better ways to make sure that people who are in, a part of a given community are actually a part of the community and not stigmatized, not pushed further to the margins. Yeah. And it's, it seems like, um, people experiencing homelessness have a lot of reasons to be disillusioned with those that are supposed to provide them with services or mm -hmm. supposed to be helping them with their situation. Sometimes this conversation comes down to like, how do we build trust? You know, how do we get, mm -hmm. get people who are marginalized or oppressed to trust us? But like, do we deserve trust? Um, mm. You know, does the system yeah. itself need to change? Um, I think it's, yeah. there's, there's difficult, difficult dilemmas there, right? Absolutely. And I'm really glad you asked that. I, I, I know it wasn't one of the questions that you had, but I still wanted, wanted to find a way to bring it up. Um, and this is something that Lori Peak mentioned in the first episode of this season. You know, we talk about our role as researchers. I mean, I, I know you're talking about trust more broadly, but I'm thinking about, you know, some of the experiences that I had when mm. I was interested in, in learning more about their experiences and their stories um, following the floods. But this element of trust, oh my goodness, it's just so, so important to consider throughout in, in the research design and in the ways that we uh, present this information back to certain communities, especially yeah. those that are more marginalized that feel like, I mean, it can feel exploit, you know, exploitative. Yeah, um, yeah. And so thinking about that, thinking about positionality and how, you know, that trust or lack of trust that some people may feel towards towards us as researchers um, is absolutely critical and, and working with any population that's that's marginalized. But yeah. I'm thinking specifically about the experiences that I had and uh, how, you know, I mean, I don't blame them for being yeah. untrustworthy of groups coming in and, and yeah. feeling like they can extract information and do with it what they, what they will without, um, you know, people who are being interviewed, having an understanding of what it will ultimately be used for. And so mm. I just wanted to point, I just wanted to bring that up. And I'm glad you asked that question because I think it's just so important. And it, mm. it really, it expands that, that notion that this idea of positionality and of trust, uh, expands beyond the research context to other contexts to, for instance, relationships that they have with people of authority, um, you know, there were instances uh, that happened during and after the floods where some people experiencing homelessness had more positive um, encounters with with police officers in particular uh, who helped to inform them to move out of harm's way while others maintain, you know, had negative experiences. And, and that, for, for instance, one such example, and this kind of ties back to the last question, but um, people were seeking refuge during the floods in parking garages because it was dry. Um, and they could, you know, they stayed there for multiple days and to, because the ground was saturated for quite a long time. Um, so it was, you know, they couldn't go back to the regular camping spots because they were either washed away or they were unable to do so, uh, because the, because of the conditions there. And, uh, shortly after transportation again was up and running, roadways were, were more or less cleared, major roadways were cleared. Uh, people had told me that at that point in time, it felt like they didn't have any time to transition back, that they were given citations for being in the parking garage. So that, you know, eroded trust with these groups. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, it, it just got me thinking when you were talking there, Jamie, that, um, what if the, that people experiencing homelessness are, are not the problem. I know that's quite mm -hmm. a radical statement, you know, in um, our society, but what if they're not a problem? They're just a symptom of 
kind of deeper issues. And I think this, this kind of ties into what we're always talking about in disasters when we're trying to focus people on root causes and why, why people are vulnerable in the first place or vulnerabilized. Yep. Um, and we, we're just so um, quick to treat people as if they're the problem or there's something mm-hmm. wrong with them. And I think this totally applies to people experiencing homelessness. You know, Jason, what you've just said, uh, I was kind of thinking the same, you know, I keep thinking about those uh, pictures of benches, I'm sure you've seen all around the world now, which are being Mm -hmm. divided so that homeless people can't sleep on them. Yeah. What kind of kind of horrible decision and who makes that decision? Right. And what Mm -hmm. does it tells us about society as a whole if we feel that by the act of beautification and, you know, use it in quotation marks, of course, we actually resolve the problem uh, that community wants, right? Are we resolving anything or are we creating more problems? What, 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 what are we doing? Well, first I want to say, no, I don't think we're resolving anything. And I want to also circle back to what you said, Jason, that I don't think that's a radical notion at all, mm-hmm. at all. Um, yeah, if anything, so especially in contexts like in the United States where homelessness more or less, you know, the idea of homelessness is a cautionary tale that, Mm. hey, you know, if you don't participate in the market economy in a certain way, if you're not an active member, quote unquote, active member of society, that, you know, this will happen to you and this deserves to happen to you, that you deserve to be in this situation. And that kind of, that stigma that, and I'm speaking very generally, you know, but that, that stigma not only serves to uh, create vulnerability and to further marginalize these groups. But I mean, I think it's just like you said, it, you're, you're pointing to, to people, to certain segments of the population as a problem without thinking about, wait, you know, what is it? Why, why do we have people who are experiencing homelessness, for mm. instance? What, mm. what are we doing? How is our society structured in a way that limits, not only limits people from having access to resources, but, um, you know, p- puts them, I guess, puts them in these precarious situations. Um, I think it's often an easy way to say, oh, well, you know, they're the problem because of their, you know, these individuals have these individual problems. And it's easier mm-hmm. for us to think in that in those terms than it is to think about how our society is structured mm-hmm. and how we as a society, you know, reinforce um, systems of oppression that, yeah. you know, whether it be Uh, racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, other forms of socioeconomic uh, systems of oppression that put certain groups at risk. I, I guess just as a society, it's amazing how society puts all these pressures, but then you're supposed to respond in, as an individual. So if you're not resilient enough as an individual, right? If you don't have means to support yourself yeah. as an individual, that you're not worthy. You know, I want to unpack the actual word homelessness. And, you know, we mm-hmm. had a little chat about it before the recording. I think very often when we talk about homeless people, we what we actually mean is people who don't have somewhere to live, right? They kind of they don't mm-hmm. really have shelter. But shelter or house and home are different things, right? Because when we talk about home, it's something about emotional attachment. It's maybe mm-hmm. something sentimental or it's something where you feel comfortable, right? It's not the same as just shelter or dwelling. 
do you think it matters it, that we talk about homelessness in a way that we talk about home rather than house? Or should we just remove this whole emotional attachment and it would kind of make the provision of shelter easier? Oh, God, I love that question. Um, because so many, when, when, we, when we talk about disaster risk, risk reduction, you know, it's very, it's place-based, um, understandably. I mean, you know, we talk about certain areas being more or less prone to hazards uh, culminating into disasters. But, you know, we, when we talk about people in a way that, you know, we, we focus on housing as a structure, but the, I, I love that question. And this is something that was actually um, uh, one of the more earlier pieces on uh, scholarship around homelessness and disaster was by uh, Brenda Phillips. And um, she wrote about the um, just it was a thought piece. It was it was really interesting piece of work about homeless people's experiences following the earthquake and how even, you know, for, for people experiencing homelessness, a doorway is a home can be a, a sense of place for them. Um, and that is not something that we would, as a society, typically identify as a as a livable structure. But this yeah. is, you know, they're especially thinking about, you know, in the context of the floods, people who, uh, you know, had certain campsites, some were more isolated, some wanted to be more isolated away from uh, the homeless community or even the more general, you know, population. But there are others who. I mean, these campsites that they lost, these were communities of people and mm -hmm. these were, you know, they, they relied on each other and they continued to rely on each other during and after uh, the floods. Um, so I, I think this notion of, you know, reflecting on what we mean by home and what we mean by a house is absolutely critical, absolutely important because, and, and this plays also into their disaster recovery. Uh, again, speaking specifically about the floods, um, people who had lost their belongings, who had lost campsites, for instance, some uh, chose to go, some tried to apply for help through the Federal Emergency Management Agency in the United States um, to, you know, to acquire funds for items that they lost. So tents, bikes, uh, cooking supplies, many of them lost hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of, worth of gear. Um, and it was difficult because they could not prove a home address. They could not provide a home address, quote unquote, home address, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, physical address, I should say. Um, so people within homeless serving organizations, ca caseworkers in particular, had to be kind of the mediator between FEMA and um, people who had lost their belongings. Um, mm -hmm. So they they would have to, they would actually, in some cases, go out with FEMA officials and say, yes, I know for certain right here along this this path right here is where uh, people, we had this many campsites and here are the people who were in those campsites. Mm. Um, so that was really, that was really fascinating to me, not only in terms of like, wow, how their roles as caseworkers changed and evolved um, mm. uh, in a disaster context, but also, you know, they, I mean, they were also fighting for, fighting for the rights of their, if their, um, you know, the people that they were working with to acquire you know, resources following the disaster and to say, hey, yes, they were living here. They were living here. This was their home. This was their campsite. Um, and really it was met, it, it was kind of unpredictable how people received funding. That's how it was told to me by people who were experiencing homelessness at the time of the floods, by caseworkers, for instance, that, you know, there was really, there seemed to be no consistent way that people received funding. But again, it goes back to this notion of place, this notion of home, um, so, yeah, I just wanted to bring that example up because I think it's really uh, relevant to the question that you asked. Mm. 
Wow, Jamie, thank you so much. This was absolutely fascinating. I really hope the listeners enjoyed listening to you as much as we did, because this topic is something, you know, I have not known anything about at all. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. I, I love being able to talk about this really important topic. And um, there's, a, there's a small but mighty group and growing group of researchers doing this work. And I just want to recognize them. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, everyone, for joining us again this week. We are um, coming to the end of our season. We'll have one more show next week, and then we'll take a, um, hopefully a deserved break for a couple of months and do some more recording for season three. But you can catch us on Monday next week, um, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to engage with us on Twitter, Disasters Decon, and Instagram as well. Ksenia is keeping Instagram going, right, Ksenia? I'm trying. Trying, okay. But we, yeah, we need more photos, don't we? Because we're we we're do, not recording we in the same place very often, so we don't get too many behind the scenes, which would be fun for Instagram. Maybe we should just take like office selfies and stuff like that. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah, questionable. So you know, at the moment, I'm kind of sitting in my pajamas, so that would be a <laughs> okay. great office selfie. <laughs> there you go. That'll... Not in the office. Not in the office. I don't go to the office in my pajamas. Yeah. So. <laughs> Good to point out. Okay. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Jamie Vickery, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcasts.